Well, good morning, saints. This morning, as Emily prayed, uh, we are considering the question once again, why did Jesus die? His death is often misunderstood, minimized, sidestepped, or ignored. It is the centerpiece of God's unfolding plan of redemption. No cross or resurrection, no Christian faith. It is the most powerful and profound display of justice and yet the most exquisite presentation of love that the world has ever known. Those of us following Christ will never, can never, ever tire of talking about it or hearing about it. Now, this morning I'd like to do something just a little bit different. I have a sermon illustration. If I have a willing volunteer for about 60, 90 seconds to join me on stage, nothing embarrassing, don't have to say anything, I just need uh, someone's assistance. So we can have this little uh, illustration if I have a volunteer come up to the stage. If not, we will just keep on going. So here's your your chance to step up. Now, I just want to mention uh, Emily, who was praying. Uh, she is the one that we highlighted in our church email, uh, letting you know that she's going to help us really oversee our life group ministry. So now you can put a name to a face there. So do I have any volunteers or shall we continue on? There we go. Harry, I knew it. (laughs) Well, well, now you're on stage. So one thing I'm going to stand just a little bit away from you. One thing that uh, we are focusing on is how the the cross, the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ literally forms the very fabric of God's word. It is not something that when we get to the New Testament, the disciples sat around a campfire and made up the story, you know, while while they're eating s'mores. So, Harry, I need you to do three things. In fact, I'm going to let you. uh, Would you please take that paper towel up top and uh, you can open it up. And would you uh, just rip it in half in any way that you like? Now, was that hard? This was very easy. It was very easy. It is indeed a paper towel. Now, you can put that down. Uh, We have a little piece of fabric there. It's bright yellow. Uh, I would like you to attempt to do the same. Now, you'll notice there are some inroads there that you might want to capitalize on. Look at that. Now, uh... How is that in comparison to the paper towel? It was a little easier, but not much resistance. Okay, not much resistance. So those two were quite easy. Now, I'd like you to take that little beach towel, and I'd like you to do the same. But don't try too hard, because I need to bring it home with me today. All right. <laughs> well, you're gone. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. In all seriousness, you can't do it. I, I won't be able to. Why would we... Why would we come to that conclusion that you can't do this. What's different about this beach towel than a paper towel? Any thoughts? 
Yeah, I can't. May I try? Yes, you may, because you're right next to me. I can hear you. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's interwoven. Yes. And uh, it, has a, it has a seam that, uh, around the edge that's pretty uh, yes. connected. Yes. And it's thicker, thicker fabric. Yes, all of the above. Which is my little way of illustrating how the narrative of the suffering of Christ is interwoven so seamlessly throughout Scripture you just you cannot explain it any other way than it is clearly presented in scripture. Harry, thank you very much for allowing us to have this little illustration and a little spontaneity uh, this morning. So the story of the cross is woven so strongly into the Bible. It seems everywhere we turn in God's word. God is pointing us to this central truth and this reality that God is reconciling and redeeming sinners for himself. Consider for a moment the number 40. You encounter the number 40 in both the Old and the New Testament. There's great significance to this number as it appears in some very key incidents throughout God's word. Consider for a moment, five chapters into the Bible, right? Book of Beginnings, Genesis chapter 5, and we have made such a mess of everything it says that God, it repented God that he even made man. Five chapters in there's judgment noah's flood 40 days and 40 nights judgment condemnation move a little further along in the old testament narrative and the the jews or the israelites are so wonderfully released and rescued and redeemed from slavery in egypt What should have been about an 11-day journey on foot wound up becoming 40 years in the wilderness. All these terms mean something in God's word. 40 years. That first generation, for the most part, they died in the wilderness. They died in their unbelief. They did not make it. That's a bleak picture. As you travel on, of course, I'm not taking all of the incidents, and I don't want to read too much into these things, but I want to highlight how this progresses in Scripture, these big incidents that are connected to, or events that are connected to the number 40. You come into the New Testament, and Jesus, remember, he was baptized That was the initiation of his ministry. And the very first thing that the Spirit compelled him to do was to go to the wilderness. Straight away to the wilderness. For 40 days and 40 nights. To be tempted, to be tested, to be buffeted, And tried by Satan himself. So remember that. 
Israelites die in the wilderness, Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, returns to the wilderness to be tested and tempted. Of course, he emerges without sin. He successfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, resists temptation and emerges still as the one who is now battle-tested, if you will, Tested in the sense of others being able to look in and see his righteousness and his blamelessness. We're talking about the death of Christ. You might recall in the Gospels it tells us from the resurrection to his ascension. How many days was it? Forty. What a difference. You have judgment, condemnation in the flood. You have complete failure and death in the wilderness with the Israelites. To the New Testament, you have Jesus victorious in the wilderness against unimaginable temptation. And then when he dies in our behalf and is raised again, it's 40 days. It's essentially like a, almost like a victory lap before he is crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Last Sunday, we looked at a special piece in the Holy of Holies. God said, do not touch the Ark of the Covenant. It is holy. We talked about what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, there were the two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, the law. What do the Ten Commandments do for every single one of us? They expose our sinfulness. They expose the fact that we are not righteous. We fall and we stumble in many ways. Next to the, the, stone, uh, the stone tablets was the manna. Jesus is the bread of life. Come from heaven. Born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. He is God's provision for us. In the same way that God made provision for the Israelites in the wilderness for their daily bread. Adam, uh, Aaron's rod that budded right next to that. A staff or a rod that signifies leadership. And Aaron was, he was set aside as the one that God had set aside. And look at that. It came to life again. This morning we'll pick up where we left off last week with this Ark of the Covenant. We talked about the mercy seat, which is basically the lid. It's the top part. You have the cherubim that are looking down together into it. They're looking downwards. And if you take away that lid, you have the Ten Commandments which condemn us. They were the justice angels. But there's something that stands in between the justice of God and our sin. Praise God for that. It is the mercy seat. On the Day of Atonement, every year, Yom Kippur, the priest would first take the blood of the bull that he sacrificed for his own sins. And he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And then as he faced the entire nation gathered together once a year, he would then take the sacrifice. In that case, it was a goat. And he would do the same thing. There was blood that was sprinkled 
on the mercy seat. Now, let's develop this a little bit more. The word that is rendered mercy seat in your Bibles, the Greek is rendered place of propitiation. Now, that's a big word, propitiation. You might have heard it in different places. Some people, sometimes we get a little intimidated by these big, intimidating theology words. But I want to ask you, don't run from these big words. Don't run from them. We don't use them often today. But they weren't made up by a bunch of people developing theology. They're actually right in our Bibles. Propitiation. It's a beautiful word. It's a gospel word that Paul will use in Romans 3 to develop the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does propitiation mean? To appease or to expiate. In this sense, God's holiness and his justice is appeased. God is holy and righteous and pure in every way. He cannot dwell with sin. And so this word propitiation that we will look at in the next week or two as we wind things down, it means to appease. Here are some other words that are associated with the word propitiation. Remember, we're talking about the mercy seat. Purge, atonement, or to make reconciliation. Atonement means to cover. These are rich gospel terms. We find them in the Old Testament, but they're used liberally in the New Testament because it explains to us what the gospel is, what it does, what it means, and what Christ accomplished, what he did for us when he died on the cross. Our sins were atoned for. And there was reconciliation between God who is holy and we who are not. And the Hebrew scriptures, as you make your way through, you realize just like this and probably much more thicker than, thicker than this right here, it is woven into the very fabric, the story, the narrative, the purpose of the Hebrew scriptures. So this morning we're going to look at quite a few verses. I just want to let you know we will flash them up. But if you want to look at them in your own Bible or phone, please uh, please turn with me to these. So let's keep in mind the purpose of not only the Ark of the Covenant, but the tabernacle itself and later the temple. Oftentimes we might think that the purpose of the tabernacle or the temple was to make sacrifices. That's true to a degree, but not really. Here's the purpose of why God had the Israelites in the middle of the wilderness build a tabernacle for worship. To house the presence of God. Because that is where God met the people. In the context of worship and sacrifices. The sacrifices made it possible 
if you will, for this to take place. Exodus 25, verse 8. This is a few verses before what we read last week, same chapter. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Don't lose sight of that statement. That I may dwell with them. That I may dwell with them. Consider, as we look towards the New Testament, think Christmas time now. When we cross into the New Testament, what is the announcement that is made? She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And he continues, all this, this is Matthew chapter 1, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. We're going back to Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Everything in the Old Testament is about foreshadowing what would take place in the New Testament. John chapter 1, John puts it this way, that Jesus, he tabernacled among us. He uses that actual word, that Jesus became flesh and he lived among us. Then Peter would say, you're the temple of God. Or Paul would say that. You are the temple. Why? Because God is living in you. It's all about that. Now, let's trace through the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. I just have a few highlights I want to show you of references to sacrifices that were made. Sacrifices being a part of the life of the Jews. This is Joshua chapter 8. Beginning in verse 31. You might know that Joshua came after Moses. At that time, Joshua, this is verse 31, built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered, it on, they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. So now the people, they're in the land. And these sacrifices are a part of their life. That's Joshua. Let's look at the book of Psalms, most often David. Psalm 66, verse 15. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of of bulls and goats. Selah. The psalmist is talking about sacrifices. This is a part of their life. Now, Samuel, the prophet, 
he's going to say, hang on a second. Remember the Israelites, they weren't exactly the most godly bunch, if we're honest. He raises a concern. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. And Samuel said, has the, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So Samuel says, now hang on a second here. It be, has become so woven into their lives, they're do, they're, they are doing what we humans do so well. They're taking it for granted. It's being done in a rote fashion. Thoughtless in the sense of not really paying attention to what it means here, but thoughtful in doing it to the T, right? That's a Pharisee. That's legalism, right? And God does not like that. There's no life there. So Samuel says, listen, these sacrifices are to be done in conjunction with a humble and repentant heart. Because the whole purpose of these things is to remind you that you are sinful and God is not. And that we continually need to readjust and calibrate our thinking as we walk with God. That's a very important concept. Don't go about your religious duties emotionally detached or worse while living in sin. In fact, later on, Isaiah, the prophet, would call them out on that very thing. Or God through Isaiah. This is chapter 43 of the book of Isaiah, verse 23. He says, you have not brought me your sheep. For burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices and I'm going right to the end but you have you have burdened me with your sins you've wearied me with your iniquities God says listen I actually would rather, I'm putting my thoughts here, would rather you not even go through with these things. If you're just going to keep on sinning, if you're going to have a sinful disposition even while you're making the sacrifices or, or gathered together to participate, you're missing the whole point. You cannot be so detached from me in your religious duties that you forget me. And so God says, he acknowledges, you haven't done what you should do. But what's wearying me and burdening me is your sin and your iniquities. We all know that we're not perfect. 
He's not being picky. They had wholesale forgotten God, ignored him, and lived their own life. You might be familiar with the exile where they were taken off, some first to Assyria and then to, uh, to Babylon. And the sorrow of seeing Jerusalem and everything ransacked and forgotten. But God is faithful. God is good. God is gracious. He is kind. Even after that, 70 years in captivity in Babylon, God is faithful. He brought a remnant back. Through Nehemiah, they rebuilt the wall. I remember preaching through Nehemiah. It was breathtaking to see the progress of God's people and they were rediscovering their purpose and their joy and in serving God and they didn't take things for, for granted. There was spiritual opposition every step of the way. But let me take you to the end. This is Nehemiah chapter 12. When they had returned and rebuilt, verse 43 of Nehemiah, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Why? For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. They had rediscovered their purpose. They had rediscovered why they were making these sacrifices in the first place. Rejoicing in God, aligning themselves with Him, and walking in obedience and intentionality. That's how it's done right. That's where the joy is overflowing. And notice, I love what he says at the end. You can hear the joy far away. When you and I are walking with Christ, when we're walking with the Lord, when we're filled with the Spirit, people around us will know. It's contagious. You can't can't hide it. You can't explain it away. But remember, these are the Israelites. So we're going to go to the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi. Malachi chapter... 1, verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord that which is blemished. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared or reverenced among the nations. So the Israelites, as you know, there's this ebb and this flow, right? They'd get it right, they'd wander, they'd forget, they'd forget, they'd call out to God, God would be merciful, and he would restore them. But really what I want you to see, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this. I just want you to see how these sacrifices are woven into the fabric of the Old Testament. 
And so when Jesus comes, when we talk about his death, when we talk about his suffering, when we talk about his blood that was shed, this was not something that was just tacked on to an angry God in the Old Testament. It all flows together. It is crucial for all of us to understand why Christ came, why he came, and why he died. As we look at the drama in the Old Testament with the Jews, it is so true what the author of Hebrews says. Every priest stands daily at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. At some point, the astute observer is thinking to himself or herself, This place smells of blood. We do this over and over and over again, yet I'm still sinning and I still have to make these sacrifices. We still have to make these sacrifices. And friends, that is what the death of Christ is all about. 400 years of silence after the book of Malachi, after the end of the Old Testament. But then, as we cross over into the New Testament, what do we encounter as the plain lands all of these promises and prophecies now in rapid fire being fulfilled where do we find ourselves think of the passages we look at around christmas time we find ourselves right in the context of the heart of temple worship and sacrifices to introduce the one who is coming, who is the Lamb of God. Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest by the name of Zechariah, the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Remember that announcement that was made all the way back in Genesis to Abram, to Abraham and to Sarah. A couple advanced in years. Without children. Ah yes. You will have a child. And oh. Oh. Oh what would come. Through your line. We find ourselves in the very same situation. The very mouthpiece of the gospel. The one who would announce the coming of the Lord. Would be born to an older couple. Unable to have children. But this is what I want you to see. Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn 
incense. Saints, this story that is all woven together from sacrifices and blood and and the tabernacle and the temple and all of these things in the Old Testament, when we come to give the full light and to show the real meaning and the true Lamb of God, the Holy Spirit takes us right into the heart of that self-same temple worship to show us the one who is the way, the truth, and the the life. And I will close with this passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. We read the first part just a moment ago. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, in contrast, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And there is the death of Christ in a nutshell, in contrast to the Old Testament, in fulfillment of the Old Testament. So next week, we will cross over and examine the suffering of Christ. The blood that he shed. I have set the table. Next week we will feast on the gospel truth of the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel, for the power of the gospel. Thank you for your testimony, for the testimony of your written word inspired by your Holy Spirit that shows us the beauty of the suffering of Christ. Oh Lord, help us to walk worthy of the calling which we have received. To pursue righteousness. To love those around us well. And if there is anyone within the sound of my voice who has not put their faith, their confidence, or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Apart from our works, our effort, our good deeds, trusting exclusively in the work of Christ, receiving the free gift of eternal life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.